Um, if you're just tuning in, my name's Scott, and this is uh, Christ Church Madison's Good Friday service. And uh, I'm the pastor at Christ Church Madison, and um, we are contemplating the passion of Jesus. And uh, sometimes for, for seasons and for churches and communities, God, God gifts us an image or a story from Scripture uh, that kind of helps us understand a, a certain season of life. And I feel like for the, the past season of coronavirus, the gift that God has given our community and I actually think our diocese at large is the story of the wilderness in uh, Exodus, in the Pentateuch, and particularly the story of the rock. Um, our first Sunday that we weren't allowed to meet together, our reading was Exodus 17 about the rock, um, which gushed forth water. And if you watched Monday Thursday, Father Trevor uh, from one of our sister, uh, sister churches in Aurora preached on the wilderness um, and when God spreads a table in the wilderness and the same story of the rock gushing water. Um, but I think there's more from this story for us to consider on this Friday of Fridays, which we call good. So I want us to dive back into that. And for that, I do want you to get your Bible. I'm going to get my physical Bible. Uh, please, I mean it again. I'm going to say it again. Get your Bible. And I want you to open up with me to Exodus 17. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible begins with Genesis and the next book is Exodus. So start at the beginning and just flip some pages until you get to Exodus. And when you get to Exodus, it's in chapter 17. And I'll give us a second just to cue into that. This is the story of the rock in the wilderness. Starting in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there in the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Keep your place there in Exodus because we'll come back to that. Um, but to summarize this situation, the people of Israel have just come out of Egypt where they were in bondage in slavery for hundreds of brutal, uh, oppressive years in slavery and God has liberated them. And they're out in the wilderness and they're in the desert and there's no water and they're thirsty and they're suffering and they're anxious. And God tells Moses to grab a stick and smack a rock and water comes out of it. And when it does, the people drink and their thirst is quenched. Now, even if we stop there, uh, this story, as we thought about it a couple weeks ago, is beautiful and in some ways bizarre. I hope you'll agree with me. It's pretty interesting what's happening. But look a little closer. Notice what God tells Moses to strike the rock with. Look at verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand 
the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. It's a staff, yes, but it's not just any staff. It's the staff with which Moses struck the Nile. God specifically points that out, and that is very significant. Because what happened when Moses struck the Nile? The sea parted, but also when he struck the Nile, it turned into blood, right? The water turns into blood. So flip with me in your Bible to Exodus 7. Hang a left in your Bible, 10 pages, and we're going to go back to this story of what God is talking about with his staff. We're going to start in Exodus 7, verse 14. I'll begin in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, just for a little context here, this is the first of the 10 plagues which came upon Egypt. Uh, The plagues were an act of judgment by God on the Egyptians who were enslaving and slaughtering the people of Israel and who rebelled against his word even after being warned, as we just read. And they were sent upon Egypt as an act of liberation to loosen the grip of bondage, which is exactly what happens to Pharaoh. He begins at the beginning of the plagues with a hard heart. And by the end of it, after the last plague, which was the Passover and the death of the firstborn son, his grip loosens. The chains break, if you will, of their slavery. And in this first plague, Moses takes his staff and he strikes the water of the Nile River and it turns to blood. Now that's really fascinating, but it's important to to note that the Nile represents the exact opposite of a desert. In the ancient world, the Nile was like the source of life and water. So much so that it was actually worshiped. Um, There was the god Hapi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but who knows how to pronounce hieroglyphics correctly. Um, was the god of the Nile and was actually seen by some Egyptians to be the Lord and father of all life. So this is a statement. By the strike of Moses' staff, God renders that life source useless. And the result of this judgment is thirst. Did you catch that? Fish die. The Nile River starts to stink. The people grow weary of drinking it. Now let's think about the connections between this and the rock in the wilderness, that first story we read. It's fascinating, isn't it? Same Moses, same staff, same Israel, same God directing the events, even the same action and and instruction. Moses was to strike something. But here's the difference. In Exodus 17, Moses strikes a rock in the desert which is a picture of desolation, the opposite of the Nile. 
and miraculously water gushes forth. And the result is not thirst, but satisfaction, a quenching of thirst. Here's the takeaway. The people of Israel not only needed to be freed from their captivity, they also needed to be nourished. They needed life-giving water in the desert. And God uses one instrument to accomplish both of those things. The people needed liberation from their captivity, and they needed their thirst quenched, and God used one instrument to accomplish both of those things. But look with me a little bit more closely. There's one other thing I want you to see here that's bizarre. Look at verse 6. This is God speaking back in the story of, sorry, flip back to Exodus 17, uh, the one about the rock in the desert. So we're in Exodus 17 again. Hang a right. And this is uh, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God is going to stand on the rock as it's being hit. This is one of those things that you probably did not catch when we read it the first time. And probably if you were reading the Bible, you would just breeze by it. But what? Um, this is one of those things that rabbis and scholars would argue about late into the night and for thousands of years. The significance of this de detail, because that's not a throwaway detail. God seems to be identifying with the rock that's being struck. What in the world is going on? Let me see if we can grasp this and get under this. Um, in times of hardship or crisis, when something has to give in order for life to go on, we're experiencing this a lot right now, people tend to look around to see who's going to do something about it or who's going to take the hit. This is like when you're hiking or camping and you forget something hours and hours away back in the car that you left that you actually need like a stove or something. And there's that tense moment where everybody who's hiking or camping is waiting for somebody to be like, oh, fine, I'll be the one that ruins my time and walks all the way back to get it. And at first it's kind of silent, but then the rationalizing and the blaming starts happening to see who's supposed to do it. You know, it's like, Carl, you're the one who left the stove in the car. And it's like, well, Cindy, you put it under the seat so I couldn't see it. And people wait. That's kind of a camping family event gone wrong situation, but let me give you another situation, how this can work. Um, one of my favorite examples is this, is from the Terra Nova expedition, which uh, you may or may not know a lot about, but basically it was part of this crazy race to the South Pole between Norway and England in 1912, these crazy guys who were just trying to get to the South Pole first. And as the English were returning, they were all dying and suffering and low on food. Um, and one of the men, whose name was Lawrence Oates, uh, he had frostbite in his feet, he was slowing everyone down, and he knew he was probably gonna die and that he was a liability to the group. And so one day they were in their tent all together. Um, this is an amazing story that is very uh, present in the British imagination because these guys were all Brits. Uh, he gets up and it's like negative 40 outside, literally, and he says famously, I am just going outside and maybe some time. And then he walked away to his death. And what he was doing was sparing his team. He took the hit. He was thinking, I'm going to walk and let my team live to have a better shot. I'm just going outside and maybe sometime. The feeling 
in those stories. It's not, it's not exactly the same, but it gets us closer to the feeling of what I think is happening in Exodus 17. The Israelites are panicking and they're looking around. What do we do? Whose fault is this? Moses, it's your fault. You do something about it. How are we going to get out of this? Who's going to take the hit? And God steps in and basically says, I'll do it. Moses, grab that staff that you struck the Nile with, and I'm going to go stand on that rock, whatever that means, and I want you to strike it. And when you do, the people will be able to drink. Their thirst will be quenched. What an amazing thing that this is God's character. This is what he did for the people of Israel. Think about those two stories, and there's so much more there, obviously, that we're not even getting into. But he liberated them from their crushing, dehumanizing captivity. He miraculously provides for them out of a rock to quench their thirst, even when they're grumbling and cantankerous. And even in, though their hearts, you see this, are turning back to their bondage in Egypt, God did all of these things because of his loving kindness because of his great, unfailing love. He took it upon himself to do these things. It is in his character to be a liberator and a provider. He stood upon the rock and the rock was struck. Now I wanna pivot out of Bible world. I told you we were gonna kind of turn back in order to come back to where we were. I wanna pivot out of Bible world and I wanna go into your living room, uh, which I assume is where you are could be somewhere else, but uh, that's where we are, at least. Um, these stories, bizarre as they are, and they are wild, are foundational in the Bible and in world history and thought because they're examples, they're dramas that we actually understand. Indeed, they were written down for us, St. Paul says, to teach us that we might recognize in them our own experience, our own human, human story and experience. And if we're honest ourselves, I think what moves us, what moves me in this story is that we recognize in them our own captivity and our own thirst. Now, you might be sitting comfortably, I'm assuming you're sitting comfortably in your room right now and you're probably thinking, um, no, I don't. I don't, I'm not a slave to anything and I have a faucet actually that coronavirus has yet to affect. Um, so you might be thinking that's a crazy thing, but hear the Bible out on this. The Bible teaches us that Egypt, as an enslaver, is a symbol for the great oppressors of sin and death. Actually, Matthew talked about this a little bit last week. And that these, sin and death, more than anything, are our great enemy and our great captor. I trust you'll agree with me that we're all in bondage to death. Death comes to us all. No one can escape it. You cannot prolong it with money or success or anything in this world. Death comes to us all and death is cruel. And death is a consequence of sin. They're in an awful, awful relationship together, death and sin. And all of us, the Bible says, are enslaved to sin. Sin is rebelling against the goodness of God, like Adam and Eve. It's doubting his, his commandments, rebelling against what he's taught us and doubting that they're good or that he really loves us. It's hardening our hearts against God like Pharaoh. Pharaoh heard so many times let my people go. And you can read that story all you want and talk about it, but we totally do that ourselves. We harden ourselves to hearing something over and over again. 
grumbling and distrusting God like Israel in the desert, forgetting all his good gifts to us, forgetting that he's a provider, lashing out at him, not trusting him. It's worshiping idols like Israel did at Mount Sinai and all the different ways that we do that on earth, whether it's money or sex or power or comfort or you name it. It's rejecting God and being complicit in, as our liturgy says, anything that destroys and corrupts the creatures of God. And our captivity to sin means that it grips us. It locks us in with chains and we cannot defeat it ourselves. Without a liberator, we remain in our sin and we stand under the righteous judgment of God. Now, I, I wanna to speak to those of you who might be new to biblical terminology and language, and I fully grant that that might sound harsh. <laughs> you might be like, um, I'm a pretty good person. I don't feel like I'm that uh, much of a sinner. You know, I've thought about that a lot this week personally. I totally get how that comes across, how you kinda of wanna push back and be like, whoa, I'm not like a captive to sin. But lucky for us, Jesus actually has an exact conversation with somebody about this one time who's having this pushback. This is in John 8. And he's speaking to folks who actually are moving towards him. So they actually are believing in him. They're kind of, they're not people who just hate him from the get-go. They actually like what he's saying. But then Jesus says this, listen to this conversation. This is from John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We love this verse, so good. But here's how people respond to that, which we usually don't read. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They're offended. They're like, what are you talking about, bro? Back off, wait a second. Whoa, 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 I liked everything else you were saying up until that point that I have to be liberated from something. And then Jesus says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And then Jesus says, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These people are offended. They disagree with his diagnosis of captivity. They're like, wait a second, bro, back off. I'm not a slave. But Jesus responds, oh yes, you are. Now, when you hear that, you need to remember Jesus is not coming and he's not telling these people that they're captives to sin in order to give them a massive son of God guilt trip. That's not why he came. Why is he talking to these people in the first place? To offer them freedom. He's coming to liberate them. But because they disagreed with his diagnosis, they rejected his liberation. If we were using 20th century language, we would call this spiritual Stockholm syndrome. It's saying, no, I'm not a captor. I'm totally fine, even though we are, and it's not wanting Jesus to come and break the chains. It's interesting. Uh, this conversation in John 8 heats up and heats up and heats up, and it ends with them picking up stones to try to kill Jesus. They just can't handle it. And these people were steeped in the Bible. These folks probably had huge chunks of it memorized. And look at how hard it was for them to accept their own captivity to sin. How much harder is it for us who live in a culture that never, ever, ever wants to step on our toes? Where the main rhetoric is all, you are great, you are amazing, don't let anyone tell you there's anything wrong about you. 
And again, I get where that's coming from, but I think these words of Jesus are just as sharp and prophetic and potentially offensive as they were in his day, if not more today. But remember, Jesus is not trying to shame you or guilt you here. He's trying to liberate you. This is why God loves those with a broken and contrite spirit. God says that a lot in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. These people wanted to kill Jesus when he told them they needed liberation from sin. But there were other people in the Gospels who meet Jesus and they fall down in public weeping. They're just making a mess of themselves. These are the people, the women with mascara running down their faces, guys who are maybe machismo, but they're crying like, you know, little babies in front of Jesus. They just know they're so broken and they want freedom. And they're crying out, Lord, deliver me. I know you're here to free me and I want it. Break me out of my chains. These were the folks who tasted liberation because they wanted it. To, Jesus said, to, G, to them, Jesus said, yes and amen, let's do this. And this is where I think we need to get in touch with our own conscience. This is always such an amazing thing to remind ourselves on Good Friday. God gave, God gave you a moral organ in your soul. He built it into you. And it is meant to lead you towards repentance and to cry out for help and liberation. Indeed, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit this is part of what he does. That's so good for us. But the Bible says we can also sear our conscience. My image of searing a conscience is like a steak on a grill. You know how you sear it? It's like searing that organ in you that wants to cry out and acknowledge your sin. It's possible to quench it. It's possible to ignore it. And that could lead to a type of spiritual Stockholm syndrome where you, do, you reject the work of Jesus because you don't think you're, you're, in, you're a captive. We do not want to do that. So we're captive to sin, but getting in touch that leads to your liberation, not your shame. It leads to freedom. It leads to light, not darkness. But we also thirst just like the Israelites. This is the thing that is so powerful when you read Exodus 17, especially in a time like coronavirus where there's a lot of scarcity and there's a lot of fear. We don't just need liberation, we need water. And some of us might actually be thirsting for actual food and water. Um, huge portions of those in the world have that experience. But the Bible also speaks to a deep thirst, a soul thirst. Listen to this from what David says in Psalm 63. He says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And David is not talking about normal water there. He's talking about soul thirst, a longing for an intimacy with the eternal, a longing for the deep human holes of love and meaning and purpose and beauty to be quenched. The longing to know and to be known my, how we thirst. How we long to drink the wells of living water. I love in Jeremiah, God says through the prophet Jeremiah that my people have committed two sins. They have turned from me, the fountain of living water, and tried to build their own cisterns to hold it, but they're cracked and dry and the water just goes right through it. Um, Matthew talked about that last week as well. 
So we have our own captivity and we have our own thirsts. And the first step of Good Friday, this is really important. The first step of Good Friday is admitting that you need a liberator and you need a drink. Being able to confess that. I do need a liberator and I do need a drink. I'm thirsty. If you're not there, the rest of Good Friday will not make sense. It won't matter to you. This is the first step. Be courageous in your own home tonight and be broken. Let the Holy Spirit move in you and use your conscience to offer God the sacrifice of a broken and contrite spirit because that's what he desires. That's what he loves is brokenness and contrition more than anything else you could do for him, more than any charity you could donate to in the time of coronavirus. God longs for people who humble themselves in their heart and say, Lord, deliver me. I want to drink. I want to open my mouth and receive living water. Because when you cry out for deliverance, God hears. And this is where it gets really, really good. The stories of Exodus 7, of the Nile being struck and turning to blood, and the story of Exodus 17 with the rock gushing water are all pointing you and leading you and beckoning you to the cross of Christ. They're signposts that are trying to get you to the cross. And it is at the cross that liberation and judgment, life and death, water and blood, thirst and satisfaction, and all the secret, intimate details of your life that only you know all converge in a way that confound all human wisdom and imagination. Remember what Paul says, uh, if you were here a couple weeks, if you're not, St. Paul wrote a bunch of books in the New Testament. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians that the rock in the desert was what people were drinking from, that it followed them. They were drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And it's on the cross that the rock was smitten. When the rock of ages that we build our life on that we drink from, that we lead others to, which is higher than all of our anxieties. It's on the cross that that rock was struck. Listen to the, to the prophet Isaiah, which Nicole read today. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is Isaiah prophesying the suffering on the cross. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Jesus bore the judgment of God for sin and death, which we deserved. Hallelujah. He entered into our own captivity. He kind of gets under the chains himself. He bears it. It's grief and it's suffering along with its consequences. And turn with me to John. You can either do it in your bulletin or since you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to John. John is in the New Testament. 
Um, and I would like for you to turn with me to John 19. This is uh, the reading that Max so beautifully read. We're going to go to the end of chapter 19 to verse 28. So John 19, verse 28. Look at this. This is the last word that Jesus says before he says it's finished and he gives up his spirit. On the cross, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Did you catch in, in Max's reading when Peter wants to defend uh, against the, the servants who are going to take him away to be crucified. Peter gets out his sword and has the instinct to stop it and to fight. And Jesus stops him and says, are you trying to get in the way of me drinking the cup the Father has given me to drink? And after Jesus says he thirsts, he drinks the sour wine. The cup he feared to drink in the garden and he drinks it to the dregs. He drinks it to his death. And when he does... Just like the Pharaoh in Exodus, the chains are broken. The grip of sin and death on us is loosened. The devil no longer has dominion. Just like the Exodus, just like God says to the people of Israel, Jesus does this for us because he loves us. Because of the joy set before him, he endured this suffering and cross. Amazing love, how can it be? We sing when we hear about this, even if you've heard about it for 50 times, 5,000 times. Jesus enters into that thirst. He suffers that thirst of judgment. But as Jesus is thirsting and drinking the cup of death, look at what happens immediately after. If you look to verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The rock is struck, and the water gushes out to quench the thirst of his people. The cross is, like the staff of Moses, at one and the same time, our liberation from sin and death, and also the source of our life. The cross is the fountainhead of living water from which we drink. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our woundedness, Jesus takes the hit. And we are at once both liberated and satisfied. Praise God. So, just thinking about this evening, the ministry of the cross, do you see how there's a twofold ministry to it? Jesus takes and he gives on the cross. He takes our sin, he takes our doubt, he takes our pain, he takes our judgment, but then he imparts, there's an exchange, he gives back this living water and joy and satisfaction and righteousness. Um, we always on Good Friday come under the, the word of God and thinking about the passion of Jesus and then we have an extended time of worship and prayer uh, and we're still going to do that. We're still going to receive this ministry today. But what's so special about today is it's in your homes. Um, it's in your living room. And this is a great gift because it's in your home that you're most aware of your greatest captivity and your greatest thirst. The walls of your, your house, if they could speak, they could tell you your greatest thirst and your greatest captivity. 
So you're not away in some sanctuary where you get to kind of sit in the back, you know. It's just you and the Lord, and the Lord's present in your house. And he is both a provider and a healer and a liberator. After this service is done, we recorded uh, some worship music that has to, that follows this theme in the scriptures of, of the rock of Christ giving us life um, of mercy and judgment and his love. And we recorded that that you can use in any way you want. The lyrics are in the bulletin. Um, but we encourage you to lay down the cross, which you have in the middle of your room and just have some time of prayer around it. We usually do this in our services where we come around and we place our hands on the cross and pray over it. And I encourage you to pray into this twofold ministry of the cross. You give Jesus something and you receive something. Um, and so we begin by asking him for liberation through repentance. Confession, all it is, is saying, I'm a captive here. This is somewhere that I am in bondage. Lord, deliver me. But it takes uttering it, confessing it, pointing to it, calling out for Jesus to minister to you there. Um, if you reject confession, you are, you are choosing to stay in Egypt. You cry out for deliverance from that. Jesus wants it. He wants to take it. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. It's like the guy's talking to Jesus saying, we're slaves to nobody. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So be brave, be courageous in your brokenness. Jesus doesn't want to go there because he wants to shame you. He wants to go there because he wants to free you. And then bring your thirsts to the cross. Where you're weak, where you need help, where you want some of that living water. Don't you love that woman in John 4 we talked about a couple weeks ago when Jesus says, I've got living water, and she's like, can I have it? Where is it? Just as you let him take your brokenness, you receive his life that, f that flows from his death. Um, and this happened 2,000 years ago, um, but the amazing thing about the triune God is that the Holy Spirit ministers to us both this giving and this taking of the ministry of the cross even today. So even if nobody else is there and it's just you in your room, the Holy Spirit ministers to you, Jesus, and he ministers to you both the forgiveness and the cleansing of the cross, and also he imparts life. The Holy Spirit, we say every week, is the Lord and giver of life. So I want to encourage you to enter into this. Enter into the ministry of the cross. Do this as a family. If you have kids, I want to encourage you to be brave. And it doesn't need to be super intense, but do it in whatever way helps your children. To think about confessing their sins, to letting Jesus take our brokenness, and receiving from him his life. If you're married, I want to encourage you to put your kids down. After that happens, and do it with your spouse. Be brave. Confess your sins. Talk about your thirsts and come before Jesus into the ministry of the cross. And if you live by yourself in your household, uh, you can absolutely do this by yourself. But I also want to encourage you to call one of our prayer ministers. Um, I haven't even talked to them about this, but they would love to pray for you over the phone. Or call me. I think my phone is on there somewhere. Just email me if you want to pray. Um, call somebody and, and ask for prayer. Ask for the Holy somebody to pray over you that ministry of healing and life and forgiveness. 
And finally, if you've never confessed your sins before and you've never believed and received the life of Jesus and you hear this and you're thinking, I do want freedom. I know I'm captive and I want liberation. And if you're thinking, I want to taste some of the living water, uh, I encourage you to do that now. I'm going to pray here in a second and just, you can pray along with my words. You can repeat after me. All you have to do is ask for, for liberation and ask for the living water. So would you pray along with me? Oh Lord, we, we so long for the power of the cross in our life. Lord, I acknowledge my own sin. I acknowledge my need for liberation and for freedom from sin and death. And Lord, we acknowledge that you alone have the power to free us from that. Lord, we seek the forgiveness of the cross and we also seek the water and the life which pours out of Golgotha. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up this in people's homes, that those would taste and see the ministry of the cross and all of its beauty and its power. We are a thirsty people, Lord. We do ask for that living water. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.